Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 360. Today is Shiva Sabatamuz. We're coming to the conclusion of the beginning of Bain Hamtzorim. And our hearts and souls go out to all the families and to all those that have still been unaccounted for, praying and hoping and beseeching God for a miracle that they are safe and sound and will be discovered because of Mamash. This program is dedicated in memory of Michal ben Yehuda Leib. As I just mentioned, Surfside, Florida, South Florida, a very um, powerful and strong Jewish community has suffered a great tragedy. And as I spoke on Friday, gave out a short video, it's all part of one family, we're all part of one entity. And frankly, the entire human race is one organism. So any loss and any pain and any fright and uh, catastrophe is one that affects us all. We don't like to say Hashgachapratis in these type of matters, but it is today is the 17th of Tammuz. It's hard to ignore the breaching of the walls of Yerushalayim of Jerusalem thousands of years ago. And here we have the breaching and the collapse and fall of a building, a structure. Last month, unfortunately, in Shavuos, another structure fell in the Stalin base Medrash in Yerushalayim. And prior to that, a month before that, Miran, of course. Structure as well, taking many lives. People ask, why? What's going on? What's happening here? So I'm not one that can suggest answers. We don't know God's mysterious ways. Our main question has to be is, what are we supposed to do about it? How do we come together, stronger, more united, and rebuild the structures that we have control over, which is our own personal structures, our family units, our communities, our cities, our nations? And what better time to focus on that, a day like today, the 17th of Tammuz, the Rambam writes in Hilchas Tainius, the laws of fasting, that when a catastrophe strikes a community, it would be insensitive and cruel, axorius, to say it's mikra nikras, it's just an accident. We have to be introspective, soul search, and look deep inside ourselves to do whatever we can to repair our behavior, and to fix anything we can amend, and that's the basis of why we fast. Even though it's thousands of years since, the, almost 2,000 years since the second temple was destroyed, and another, uh, you add to that, another 290 years, and you have also the first Beis Amigdash destroyed during this three-week period. And we're told that one of the reasons for it was sinas chinam, baseless hatred. So what is the solution to that? Baseless love. Love bonds, love connects, love builds structures. So that's the call of the hour. And though we're pained and hurt and grieve over this, at the same time, we're told that the point of all the grief is that it shall lead to greater strength and to greater growth. And we do both together. 
So, in the spirit of Allah, Chassidus applied, I felt appropriate to begin with this because of this is on our hearts and minds. Chassidus applied, is applied to every aspect of life, including events like this. What does Chassidus say? What does Tehidus say? And that's in a nutshell. That we don't ignore it, we don't deny it, we don't escape the pain of it. Yes, we cry, we're in pain, we grieve. At the same time, we turn that grief into a powerful surge, a catalyst for growth in every possible way. Now, it may sound contradictory, but nevertheless, the human being was created in a way that we can, and we can deal with this contradiction, and we could do both. Not always easy, and sometimes it has to be done in stages. But that's the bottom line, and that's especially Chassidus, that talks so deeply and comprehensively about the Tzimtzum Harishim, and about all the tzimtzum, the concealments, because at the end of the day, the root of all these breaches and all collapses and all pain and all suffering comes down to God concealing the divine presence from existence to allow an independent reality to emerge. With the goal, tzimtzum b'shvil hagilui, the tzimtzum, which is a great concealment, is in order to bring even a greater revelation. So this is essentially one of the most fundamental principles in Chassidus, the idea of the descent brings to a greater ascent. The concealment is to bring a greater revelation. And that revelation is much stronger than one that comes out of darkness and through darkness than the one that's there initially without having to have dealt with the concealment. So ultimately, when we transform the concealment of the tzimtzum, we reach not just the Eirein Sof, the divine energy, infinite divine energy that was there pre-tzimtzum, but even higher than that as well. We draw down new energy, unprecedented power, as he explains in the beginning of Samach Vov, right in the first Maimon, and then Ayim Beis at length, this theme. So in other words, creation is not just to get back to where we started after there's a concealment, let's get back to pre-concealment. Then it wouldn't have been worth it is that we actually transform and reach even greater heights. And that's translated in psychological and practical terms that whatever we face, a small symptom, when I say small, I don't mean the magnitude small, I mean microcosm compared to the great symptom in our personal lives, in any possible way, whether it's the 17th of Tammuz, whether it's Tishabov, whether it's, an, whether it's a, um, a, a, a tragedy in Surfside, Florida, or elsewhere in the world, it all teaches us the same message. It doesn't justify it, it doesn't explain it, it just says this is what we must do. We are here, we have to double and triple our efforts. So again, our prayers and our blessings and everything that comes from our hearts and souls goes out to those that need a Yeshua and their families. And at the same time, we must increase, literally increase in every form of building our structures, making them stronger than ever, more united, than ever. So, just in the last two days, I received many, many questions just on this topic. I believe they're mostly encompassed in what I just addressed. But I do want to read, the questions was, number one is how do, should we react to the catastrophic building collapse in South Florida? I believe I just responded to that. Obviously, it's just in a nutshell. There's much more that can be said. And every one of us, each one of you, can initiate all types of ways of creating deeper structures and strengthening Avis Yisrael, Nachdus Yisrael, love for each other, unconditional love, baseless love, and unity 
And every good deed the Rebbe emphasized during these three weeks, starting from Shivas Rebbe the focus on Tzim B'mishpet Tipadav Shavaya which we'll say in the Haftarah of Shabbos Chazayim before Tisha B'av. B'mishpet Tzim, Zion is redeemed through Mishpet, which is Halacha, Teira, the learning of Teira, the learning of Halacha, V'shavah and its captives, B'tzdaka, through charity. So when you see people who are captives, and captives can be of many sorts, including perhaps under rubble, or wherever they may be trapped, tzedakah is a direct force that helps redeem, helps free hostages and captives. And especially the learning of the Hilchas Beis Abchira, the laws about the Beis Amikdash, because when you learn about the Beis Amikdash, it's like you're building it, rebuilding the structure of the Beis Amikdash. Then Hilchas Beis Abchira in the Rambam, that's the halacha, in Mishnayis, Mesech Tamidus, in Psukim, Psukim of Yecheskel, that talk about the third base Amigdash. And in addition to many other suggestions of, adi- of increasing in Teirah Mitzvahs during this period in time, in a way that's permitted, obviously, because the more you can do Simcha, and Simcha that's permitted, which is uh, basically through Teirah Mitzvahs, which are forces that were told elicit Simcha. P'chudah Hashem Yesharim Esamcha Leiv that make hearts delight, we need to do because we have to counterbalance the darkness with greater light and greater joy and greater Torah mitzvahs, which lead to greater simcha shal gedusha. With the recent tragic collapses in Miran, in Ir, Stalin, in Sivan, and now in Surfside, in Thomas, what are we to think? Well, it's clearly not a coincidence, as the, we said before, the Rambam says, not that any catastrophe should never, God forbid, be seen as an accident or coincidence. There's always deeper meaning. I cannot say we don't know what God wants, but one thing is in common is the structures. As soon as you see structures are falling, one way or another, that tells you something. That's why I'm emphasizing the building of structures. What are we to think? We are to think that God has his mysterious ways. We don't understand all the plans. Um, clearly, we have to do our part. And there's some things that are fine that we don't always have, and have to have an answer. Maybe it's even better not to have an answer. This is what we learned from the Rabbeim. Of course, there's a strong temptation. We'd all love to say, what's the meaning behind it all? Is it connected to the fact that we're literally at the verge of Mashiach coming? And this is some wake-up call. But then, of course, is the question, why do we need a negative wake-up call? Why do we need it to come in this way, with death, with loss? To say that other things have not woken us up, so we need something of this type of trauma. You know, we always say, the Rebbe brings from the Samach Tzedek, the Rebbe himself so many times, the Ebshah's call Yachli can find ways, especially after everything we've gone through in history, especially in the last century and so on. So there's always going to remain a question because the Ebshah can find other ways. Yet, at the same time, from our perspective, there has to be something we learn from it because then it would be a real disgrace and tragedy, that we don't even learn anything from it. Simply to honor the people who were lost in Miran, the couple, the people, that, the two that were lost in Stalin, the, the now five, I think, believe that they, the count is, and hopefully it ends right there, that it would be a shame if we did not redeem that. That was always the point, that even after the Holocaust, the point was not just to remember six million Jews, but to so-called fill in, compensate, and compliment what they would have done 
had they continued to live, the families they would have built, the mitzvahs they would have done, the Torah they would have learned, the davening, the tefillahs they would have said. So we have great responsibility when we're aware of these things. And we have to take it to heart. No, there's a lot of, we live in a time of comforts, prosperity. Even though we have our challenges as now and we've had over the last year and a half, but comparatively speaking to previous generations, I mean, we live literally almost in the times of Mashiach. Shmuel says the only difference between Mashiach and Elam Hazah, which means the world before Mashiach, is Shibud Malchus Bovat, basically being, under the, being subjugated by the nations. What subjugation do we have today? Yes, there's taxes, there's <laughs> parking tickets, some people point out. But compared to the subjugation, Nazi Europe, Communist Soviet Union, the Tsars, the pogroms, the inquisitions, the expulsions, the genocides, the crusades, the destruction of the temples. And prior to that, Golis Mitzrayim and Golis Bovel and Golis Edem and in that order. I mean, we've had serious oppression and affliction. So relatively speaking today, the enemy is mostly within our own complacency. Time to become serious. This doesn't mean we cannot be benefit from the blessings that we were given in our time. But understand, as the Altareb explains in Tanya so powerfully, that all these blessings in abundance of material have to be used toward the spiritual. The to Git Aiden Gashmis, Ayem Yemi brings from the Altareb, that the Ibishta God gives a Jew Gashmis, now Id Machfun Gashmis Ruchnis. And a Jew takes from the material and makes it spiritual. Takes matter and makes it into spirit. So the more we're blessed with, whether it's wealth, possessions, options, opportunities, the more we have to turn that into a dira a home for the divine in this world. Which again, dira is a structure. A dira is a structure. And a dira no, a beautiful structure. So, I've been interweaving here Chassidus applied to these events as well as Chassidus applied to the 17th of Tammuz. What is the significance of this day? So there are many lessons, of course, we can, can be learned, but I believe the breach of the walls, the breach of the structures around Yerushalayim, and then ultimately, unfortunately, tragically, three weeks later, the destruction of the Beis Amidish itself is most appropriate to talk about. The Rebbe explains what's the breach of the walls. So on a physical level, of course, if they didn't breach the walls, they couldn't enter into Yerushalayim and ultimately destroy the Beis Amidish. So the point of a wall is that it protects but in Ruchnius walls, Susi Yoglutera, that when you see there's somewhere some weakness, what do you do? You reinforce. When you see somewhere there's some type of fragile or vulnerable situation, you reinforce everything around it to protect it. So the walls represent the reinforcements. All the halachas and the takonis and the gzeres that the rabbonim, that our sages put into place to protect the very essence of the Teda, because many of them are exactly that. There was some pirza, there was some weakness, there was some leniency or laxity around a particular behavior. So the Rabbonin, Chazal, built siyogin, they built fences. Biko Motzah, Godr Begeder. They built, they found a place that was open and vulnerable. They built a fence, that's what you do. Why do people build fences around their fields, around their properties? As a protection. 
In this case, a protection of spiritual protection. So when that's breached, it's not a small matter. Even Asarabatevis, which is the beginning of the process, a few years earlier, when, uh, when, uh, when, when it says that uh, Melech Bovel, Somach Melech Bovel, that he surrounded, encamped Jerusalem, the city. Even before the breach, that was already considered the beginning. Now there was time and appropriate enough time to do tshuva. But that didn't happen. So we don't look at a problem when the problem begins. We look at the root of it. Very often people deal with symptoms. Okay, there's a symptom, then I'll deal with it. But often things begin far long before the symptoms. So let's not wait. Nip it in the bud is the lesson. So Shavasa Thomas teaches us we don't have to wait three weeks. As soon as you see a wall being breached in any form of your life, you have to, it doesn't have to be necessary meaning a positive or negative mitzvah, but even a thing that just protects a mitzvah. Don't put yourself in a situation that can be dangerous. Don't put yourself in a situation of risk. You don't have to wait till, the, till it actualizes. Many people say, you know what? I don't have to really be so careful about some of this yogin. Take, for example, Hilchus Yichud. Hilchus Yichud are laws that are here to protect the sanctual sanctity, the sanctity of sexuality among men and women, among our lives and our homes and so on. So someone could say, what's well, the big thing? So I may not be didactic or careful in every specific detail. And we see it all begins with, those, with, the, with the guards around it. If you protect that, you would have no issues altogether. I remember when the, 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 the Me Too movement began, all the issues of abuse. If you think about it, if people just follow those laws of Yichud, it wouldn't even come to a situation of compromise yourself. And I'm just using a very blatant example. But there's so many other examples of protecting the walls. The walls have to be protected. When we send our children to school, what does that mean? It means it's not just what they're taught. It's an environment. The walls, the very environment of their homes, of their schools, of camps, are also saturated with Yerushamayim and Gedusha and holiness, which those protective forces can have more effect than the actual things they even learn. So the walls are critical to keep in place and make sure they're intact and definitely not breached and definitely not crumble or fall in any God forbid way. Why do we still fast for an event that happened 2,000 years ago but we don't have a fast day for the Holocaust that was less than 100 years ago? So it's a two-part question. So let me answer this in two parts. It's the same with every one of the holidays. Why we honored Rosh Hashanah when it happened, when the creation of the world, the creation of the human being was 5,781 years ago? Or the same thing with Pesach and Shavuos and Sukkot, or for that matter, your birthday? So in Judaism, we don't just commemorate. Time itself is a spiral. Whatever happened the first time, that first time during that period, repeats itself every year during that time, because time is energy. So on Shivas whatever happened, the first Shivas Abitamas, there's opinions that both the first and second temple, the walls were breached, walls of Jerusalem, first by the Babylonians, then by the Romans. But regardless, all opinions hold the Romans for sure. It was breached on the 17th of Thomas. That means that that was a day that's prone, that has some type of negative energy that al- allows for walls to be breached. And with that begins the sad mourning period called Benam Tzorim, dire straits, between boundaries, between constraints. 
which ultimately, unfortunately, would lead to Tisha B'Av. So every year, it's not remembering what happened 2,000 years ago. We're remembering the breach of the walls of Yerushalayim, Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim means Yerushalayim, complete awe of God. The Beis Amigdash is the window, the interface between heaven and earth. Shara Shamaim, as, uh, as, yeah, as Yaakov said, it's the gate to heaven. It's the place where heaven meets earth. Or heaven kisses earth, the divine presence. So the Besamidis wasn't just an event that happened back then. Besamidis represents the divine presence in your life, in my life, in all our lives. And what does that mean in simple English? That we're completely aligned with the source of life. Imagine a human body that's disconnected from its source of life, from its heart, or from the other forces that give it life, God forbid. That would create illness, disease, and ultimately death. Existence itself has a creator and is energized by that creator. So when that bond is seamless and fused, where heaven and earth join, and you have a shachanti b'seicham, the divine presence within each one of us, and within within each one of us, within the very material world in which we live, then you have a healthy world aligned with its purpose. Existence, the machine is aligned with the purpose that the engineer built and created it for. God forbid, due to the sins and due to the sinas chinam, the baseless hatred and the divisiveness, caused there to be a split. Not from God's perspective. Even though we say that the shechina begalusa, shechinta begalusa, galu lo'edem shechina imahem, because there's a part of the divine that is bond to us, and when we are in exile, and the divine is concealed in kavyachal, so to speak, the divine is, from the divine perspective, there's also some form of concealment. Higher levels, obviously God is not impacted by it, but we are impacted by it, and the Shekhinah and the divine that relates to us is impacted by it. This is the definition of Golis. Golis, Golinum Arsenu, means literally exiled from our land, but it's also a spiritual displacement. Even the Jews in Israel, when they say in Musaf, Anyantuf, they say, due to our sins, due to our iniquities, that something is lacking, Aveda from being displaced, moving away, a displaced structure, what will happen if the structure is displaced? It will cause plenty of problems to those living in that structure. And that's the essence of what exile in Golis is. A spiritual, psychological, emotional displacement, which manifests also in a physical displacement. And what do we do to correct that? On this 17th of Thomas, when all that's being recreated, as it happened the first time, is we strengthen those structures through our unity, through our good deeds, through our Torah mitzvahs, our study and our charity. And each year, we increase in that, because each year, as long as it's not rebuilt, the, the Gemara in Yerushalmi says, the Talmud in Yerushalmi says, that a generation has not rebuilt a base major, it's considered as if they destroyed it. So we have the power to rebuild it, firstly spiritually in our own lives, in our communities, in our environments, and by extension, the Ebeshtah will then allow the base Amidrash Lamayla to come down to the Migdash Lamata. Yerushalayim Shalmayla to Yerushalayim Shalmata. Jerusalem above to Jerusalem below. The temple above to the temple below. A rejoining, a refusing to have again that seamless flow and now even stronger and greater as I mentioned before 
that the tzimtzum, the concealment, is only meant to intensify that connection. Now, why were holidays not made for, why was a fast day not designated for the Holocaust? Six million Jews, that's a serious number. So the Rebbe in the Purim Tavshin Tazayin actually speaks about it. And I don't believe he mentions the Holocaust, but he alludes to it. I've spoken about it many times actually in this program as well. The, briefly, the answer based on Torah Eir Vayeshev is why Bechlal, after Pesach Shvua Sukkot and after Chanukah and Purim, we don't see any more holidays made. Not for the positive, for miracles that happen, and not to commemorate the negative things. And the answer is based on what I just said before. When, when Jews left Egypt on Pesach, it wasn't just Pesach. It is essentially the spiritual energy of freedom. So every freedom is really celebrated on Pesach. And the same thing in the negative. When the temple was destroyed, which is a result of the tzimtzum and all the other concealments, that is a universal event that affects every tragedy that ever would happen from then on is remembered on Tisha B'av and on 17th of Tammuz. So it's actually Tisha B'av is remembering the Holocaust because the Holocaust could not have happened had the temple not been destroyed. The temple could not have been destroyed if there was not that concealment and all the other forces. The way Chassidus puts it, the Tzimtzum Arishan is the initial concealment. Shvira Sakelim, the shattering of the containers created more disruption. All Seisram and Aslivnas, all in order to rebuild. Talk about structure. Shvira Sakelim, again, a structure being destroyed in order to rebuild even a greater one, followed by the diminishment of the moon, followed by Chetet Sadas. The sin of the eating from the tree of knowledge, which, which would in turn resulted later in the, tree, in the sin of b- building the golden calf and worshiping it. So all of that is connected. So when we understand the spiritual significance of this dissonance in its full manifest form, then it applies itself to every tragedy that has ever happened, including the Holocaust. So truth is, if you really honor Tisha B'Av, you're honoring every person that was killed in the Holocaust. You're honoring the very tragedy itself. This is based on the principle that these Yom Tevim are, yom, are in that sense, these, these significant days encompass the energy of either the positive or the negative, as well as the fact that the souls back then were Neshama's Klolis. So what happened to one person was an individual that happened to all the souls that would originate from them, that would branch out from those Neshama's Klolis. So the events that happened then, what happened when the Jews left Egypt, was all the Shishim Ribi, all the 600,000 root souls, therefore it includes all the souls that would be till the end of time. So the events then are Klolis events in that same sense, macrocosmic events that affect all of history. When you think of it that way, firstly, you understand these days, significant days, the holidays, as well as the fast days, in a far deeper way. And it also connects us throughout history that all the positive days and all the ones that are still concealed days are all interconnected. And it's not just something that happened in the past. Okay. What can we learn from the breaching of the Jerusalem walls? I answer that question, but I'm just reading it because this was this. Some of the questions that came in, well, many of the questions that came on are all included in the ones I've already addressed. Okay. Now we have another, the Pasha Pinchas. This week begins Pasha's Pinchas, which follows Balak, and the story continues from the end of Balak 
after Bilam's advice to if you want to hurt the Jews, you have to have them hurt themselves, allow themselves to be vulnerable. They're seduced by the idolatry of Baal Pe'er, by the Midianite women. And Zimri openly desecrates God. Zimri, the Nasi of Shevet Shimon, openly defiles, defiles and desecrates God by having relations in public with the Midianite woman. Pinchas, realizing the great desecration, uncharacteristically doesn't wait for anything and just goes and spears them both. And with that, the Magefa, the pandemic, the epidemic that took place at the time, stops. As the Pasuk says explicitly. Dick speaks Pasha, continuing from where last Pasha ended, begins and his name Pinchas, that Pinchas is then rewarded to be Kayan Shalom, to be the Ishalom, to be, he's rewarded the priesthood of peace. Which of course seems strange. He just did something which was a pretty aggressive act. Yes, it was necessary. But it's because he created peace between the people and God. So the whole story is filled with many questions. First of all, Torah insists on due process. He brings Imri to a court of law, to Abesdin. Doesn't this seem to leave room, as some of the questions that I'll read now, in, for zealotry? Does Pinchas killing Zimri without due process leave room for antinomian, antinomianism, which means anarchy, basically, no law and order? Why is Pinchas rewarded for zealotry? Isn't that setting a precedent for inspiring zealots to commit crimes? Okay, so let's answer that question. So first of all, Pinchas, especially when you read the Pasuk, Pinchas was not known as an aggressive zealot. He was known as a very quiet and gentle person. The fact that he did this shows that he wasn't like this zealot, waiting, you know, zealots that have that nature, and then they can't wait till something like this happens, God forbid. I'm not going to go to that extreme. But when you see a person whose complete personality is not that way, you know that it's completely dedicated to God. The Torah does not advocate and never allow zealotry. And it's absolutely against Torah. But once in history you have it because there's sometimes a time where you need to do something. You can't wait because of the emergency situation. People are dying. It wasn't just, okay, we'll go to court of law and we'll go through the due process. People were dying and Pinchas saw the desecration. So the Torah documents one such story to know that it exists, but not, God forbid, to allow the door. You see, the fact of the matter is, you don't see anyone afterwards saying, all right, quoting Pinchas, let's go do the same thing. And anytime someone did something like that, it was actually considered a bad thing, a negative thing. What does it mean in our lives? In our lives, it means we have to always follow Torah and Halacha in an orderly way. But there are going to be times, sometimes an emergency, we have to take an action. I'm not suggesting such an action, but an action that may sound pretty strong, but it's an action that's going to save lives. And you can't always sit and wait until there's a, a meeting and a discussion about it. So that's, what, that's the lesson that we learn from Pinchas. With the same time, the qualification that it should not be seen as a precedent in the case that people can just go wantonly behave in such a fashion. And that's why he was rewarded peace, because he was a man of peace. This was not an, a war, an act of war. 
It was something that went against his entire nature, but necessary to be done. So if it was done by someone like Shimon, remember Shimon and Levi, they went and they, <laughs> they killed the people of Shechem, and that's one of the reasons they were kept separate, and that's why Yosef took Shimon as hostage and he held them, because he knew they were very aggressive. So then you could say, okay, it's coming from an aggressive place, but this was not coming from Shimon, from the tribe of Shimon. Coming from Pinchas. And therefore the reward was one of Shalom because that was his intention. That's what he achieved. He brought peace. Because remember, Bilam's advice was that you have to undermine the Jews from within. So the only solution could be from within as well. And that's what Pinchas did. He quieted down the, the, the hostility and the tension that was created and separated the Jews from God during that terrible time. Reminds me of a story with my father, was by the Yechidus and the Rebbe once. And the Rebbe had asked him, said to him, smilingly, you know, you're a journalist, maybe you want to do an interview. My father said, can I, if anything can be asked? And the Rebbe said, there's no censorship in America. My father asked the question, he said, people want to know why the Rebbe sometimes takes a position and just does it without necessarily consulting anyone else. Different organizations, different rabbis. So the Rebbe quoted the Posuk in Parsha Shmeis, where Moshe Rabbeinu is watching and seeing how an Egyptian is hitting, striking a Jew. And then it says, Vayifim Moshe Kei Moshe looked back and forth, here and there, Enish. And he saw there's no person. And then he went and struck and killed the Egyptian and buried him under the sand. So the Rebbe asked, talking to my father, he said, why didn't Moshe look here and there? Why does the Torah tell us this? So Rashi says he was looking if anyone with, with the, Egypt, the Egyptian, if any of his descendants would be someone that has to be considered. The practical reason the Rebbe mentioned is because he was wanting to see that nobody's watching. Was that what Moshe concerned about? And that's what the Torah has to tell us. And it didn't help anyway, because Das and Vavir were watching. And they actually informed on him. And he had to escape after that. So the Rebbe responded and said, Moshe saw a Jew was being hit. And he looked around, does anybody care? Is anybody taking notice? Is anybody doing anything? Is anyone protesting? He looked here and there, nowhere to be found, anyone, even protesting. So there's no person. So he did what he had to do. So in a subtle way, it's similar to what Pinchas did. Obviously, we're not, again, advocating sparing anyone. And that was the Rebbe's response. Interesting. So we all have times when we need to do something like that. And we should not necessarily know of any negative time, but if a situation comes up, you see a building is burning or a building has crumbled, as long as obviously in a way that doesn't put you at risk, or at least at unnecessary risk, you do what you have to do. You don't wait till everybody assembles. It's a life and death, death, so we have to address it immediately. 
A second part of the questions regarding the, the continuing Parsha talks about the Bnei Slavchad, the daughters of Slavchad who came and complained and demanded that they were heirs to their father Slavchad. They wanted the inheritance. Now women don't, don't, are not halachic heirs. There's ways you can give them, but not as halachic heirs. But here, because of their requests, they were granted that their request, and they were given the heirship. So here's the question. Why were there no laws in the Torah protecting women and their rights to inheritance until the daughters of Sofcha spoke up and complained? On the other hand, someone asks, why were the daughters of Sofcha not punished for complaining? Which will lead me to a bunch of other questions about complaining to God. Because if you really think about it, sometimes you see complaining is completely acceptable. Sometimes... God says, why are you complaining again and again? Ten times you're testing me in all the different expressions. The Jews are actually punished for complaining. So let me go, already might as well go into those questions, which of course can also address our times. We have much to complain about. When is it legitimate and when is it not? And how is it legitimate? Why was God so harsh with us when we complained in the wilderness? Is there an appropriate way of complaining to God? Okay. Good. Good. It's not so good, but these are good questions. That's what I meant. So let's start with Bnei Slavchot, first of all. You have a similar question regarding Pesach Sheni. A few chapters back in Baal that the Jews who were unable to bring the Paschal Lamb during the Pesach when the Jews left Egypt came to Mesha and said, we were unable to bring the Pesach. What can we do? They wanted to bring a carbon Pesach. Well, Pesach had passed already. Over Yemi bottle carbon. Once days passed, there's no time to bring. You can't bring a carbon after the time period. And yet they cried out and they beseeched and they said, Lomenigara, why are we being in second class? Why Lomenigara? Why are we lacking? Why are we losing out? And Hashem responded to Moshe, because of their cry, give them a mitzvah called Pesach Sheni. So though it's not exactly like Pesach Rishon, it's not all the same conditions, but it's a Pesach, it's a full Pesach Sheni. That someone who's B'derech Recheka, the Din is. Meaning they were dist- they'll be distant from the Mishkan or the Beis HaMikdash. So they, you have to bring the Korban Pesach, the Beis HaMikdash. Or Tmeya. They're impure, so they can't bring the sacrifice. They will have a month later, in the month of Ir, a day to bring Pesach Sheni. So you could ask the same question. Why did we have to wait? The people have to complain. Why couldn't God say that? Give people a second opportunity. He knew that many, or there were a number of people that did not bring the Pesach. Because there are things that have to come from our initiative. And that's the lesson. Because we could also have had, you don't have to have the whole story. The Torah could have just told us. It came a month later, and then Moshe told them that God is giving you another opportunity. It's part of the story is that we have that the people ask for it and they cry out. It teaches us that our relationship with God is a partnership. Yes, there are things that we're commanded to do and our job is to fulfill. But there are also things we are asked to develop. When Moshe was on Har Sinai, so there are things the Ebrister told them, these are the mitzvahs. And then there's Allah Moshe Messinai. Shiurim, things like Bar Mitzvah at, 12 years, at 13 years old, but then, uh, the Ebrister taught Moshe Rabbeinu the methodology of learning Torah, 
and showed him memtes ponim. He showed him 49 arguments that something is pure, and 49 arguments, 49 arguments that it's not pure. And Moshe says, so what's the conclusion? So the Ebishter said, I'll pee. Uh, you lahatis. You go according to the consensus, the majority. Now Moshe, of course, paraphrasing the Rambam, explains it. Why are you leaving it in doubt? Why don't you tell us exactly what the rules are? Because that's the partnership. I'm giving you the Teir, I'm giving you its rules, the Yud Gimu Midrash Teir Behem, the 13 methodologies of how we study and develop and apply Teir, and I want Teir labor shamayim. Teir is not in heaven. I want you to determine. Even when there's a machlekes between Masif to the Rikhi and Masif to the Kutshebrikhu, the Gemara says, between the two academies, God's academy and so-called academy in heaven. You can't, you could say, one second, if God is part of the discussion, ask God. It says, labor shamayim. We have to go down to Rabbi Bar Nachmeni to hear someone on earth. The Psak has to come from earth. So in other words, it's a partnership. So there are things that were given, yes, it's like resources. A partner gives you the resources, but you have to then now develop those resources. The famous question when asked, Rabbi Akiva is asked, why are you circumcising day old boys? If God wanted them circumcised, he'd create them that way. So Rabbi Akiva answers, why do we, if God wanted us to have bread, he should give us bread. Instead, he planted grain and you have to plant grain in the, in the fields. And then you have to cultivate it and water it until it sprouts. And then you take the grain, and you have to, you have to, you have to then separate, and ultimately take the flour and mix it with water, and then bake it. How many steps just there? Because that's the way the world works. It's a partnership. He created it in order to make it even better and improve it. So in the Tater too, there are things that are stated. There are things that have to be developed. And the same thing in Ayurveda. There's things that the Ebrister says, this is what I want you to do, but there are times where your cry and your call elicits something from above, like Pesach Sheni, and same thing with Bnei Slavchat. Now why in these cases and other cases not? That's another discussion. It could very well be that both of them have their particular message. Briefly, as far as Bnei Slavchat goes, that sometimes that's what you need, and a woman has that power to cry out and create a new halacha from above regarding the issues that, uh, of inheritance and so on as happened with B'nai Slavchat. Okay, so the lesson to us is very clear. How do you explain then when, why some complaints are, are, are positive and some are not? Why they were not punished? Because there's complaints and there's a complaint. If it's a complaint because it's coming from a negative place, it's one thing. The Jews were not satisfied with this and not satisfied with that when they had plenty of resources, they were blessed with so many different things. But if it's a complaint that's coming from the cry of a heart that really feels like it's lacking, that's a very different story. That's one distinction between the two. Second is, are you challenging God as of like, like the people in the Tower of Babel challenged God? Or are you beseeching God? When we daven, you can also say, what kind of right do you have to daven? If God forbid somebody's not well. Ebershter decreed he's not well. So why are you praying for Enu and for Shlema and Misha Bedach, Yehi Because your goal there is to, is to appeal to God. 
You're not challenging God, you're appealing to God. It is a challenge, and that's what God wants, just like Moshe Rabbeinu challenged God, and as a result, after the Chet HaEgel, and as a result, he, he succeeded in getting Yom Kippur. But when it's coming from a place that you're appealing, and that way challenging, it's one thing. If it's a challenge like, like, uh, like a challenge like Koyrach, stood up against, that's another story entirely. In many cases, you can tell the difference. If not, you have to look a little deeper, and you can usually find this distinction. So is there an appropriate way? Yes, there's an appropriate way to complain to God. It's called davening. It's called saying tilim. It's calling crying out. And you could even have a taina. But the taina has to be one with the proper respect. And remember, respecting God, does not, God is not, is not of concern with the taina. When Moshe said, Why are you doing evil to these people? When Pari was bathing in the blood of Jewish children and all the other tzaras the Jews had, so first he was reprimanded, but then he was rewarded. Same thing of Ramavinu when he said, People will say, The judge of the earth is not doing justice. So these were all seemingly challenges, and they were in a certain way, but they were coming from my belief in you, I believe in your goodness. When Moshe said to Hashem, forgive the people, it wasn't because he's saying, I believe that you have that deep connection to them and that you have that love inside of you. And that ultimately evokes, as the Pesach Sheni story and the Bnei Slovcha story shows, a compassion from above that ultimately resulted in Yom Kippur, resulted in all the other blessings that we receive. So we have absolute right to do that, but it just has to be, there's a certain subtle difference. It's a question, are you, do you think you're equal with God? No, it's coming from a humble place because of the humility. It's like when you love someone, you cry out to them, what's the story here? And I really want more of you. It couldn't come across that way, but it's coming from a loving place and a place of deep respect, even deeper respect, because you expect more from God's revelation. And in that sense, it's not just legitimate, it's what God expects and wants of us. As he told Moshe later, by Yom Kippur, you prayed. By the Meraglim, what happened? In other words, prayer is an essential component. Moshe prayed 515 prayers to go on to Eretz Then the Ebishter told him to stop. Why didn't he tell him to stop at the beginning if you knew he's not going to fulfill? Because it teaches us the persistence necessary. In that case, the 515 prayers did their job, meaning they accomplished something. They weren't to waste, God forbid. But it didn't accomplish what Moshe wanted at that time to enter. So prayer is an, an integral part of our relationship with God in that sense, in that context. Going back to the discussion of Shivas and Batamu, since we're talking about, I want to uh, go back to a few more questions that I had. Rabbi Kiva was asked by his colleagues why he was laughing when, while looking at the ruins of the Beis Amikdash. He answered that just as the prophets said it would be destroyed, the prophets also said it would be rebuilt. Therefore, my question is, why do we mourn during the three weeks? Why not laugh like Rabbi Akiva did and, ex- and accentuate the positive and celebrate that it will be rebuilt soon? I spoke about this a few weeks ago, but because it's so relevant, let me repeat what I said, in some at least. Rabbi Akiva sat shiva on Tisha B'av at the same time that he laughed. So you can ask a question about Rabbi Kiva. You think he didn't cry and grieve Tisha B'Av? Or Shavasa B'Tamuz? 
especially someone who was there literally in the wake and the shadow of the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash. The point in the Gemara is not that when it comes a sad day we start laugh. The point was that we don't just remain. The end of the story is not just the grieving. They were looking at the Har Habayis, Rabbi Kiva and his colleagues. They saw the wilderness. They saw it turned into a into a a, de- a desolate place. They saw these fox coming out of what once was the Holy of Holies where the Kayan Gadol with his, all his splendor would come out. So they began to cry. Rabbi Akiva, because they saw the fulfillment of the tragic fulfillment of the prophecy. Rabbi Akiva laughed because he also saw the second half. And we've discussed why Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva came from Gerim. Rabbi Akiva began his life through darkness. Forty years he had not learned Torah. So he was able to see the light even in darkness. But that doesn't negate that what we, halacha dictates what we have to do when it comes to a fast day. At the same time that we say the fast day, we also remember, that it will be transformed, but it's not transformed yet. So Rabbi Kiva's perspective is necessary. So even when we fast and we're grieving, we also inward know that the point of this is ultimately to bring laughter and joy. But not that that negates the halacha of right now, you have to grieve. It's like someone saying, I'm not going to sit shiva, God forbid, for someone, because I know Tchisa Mesim is coming. I absolutely believe it happened any second. But right now, this is where we are right now. It's part of honoring the loss. Rabbi Kiva did not say that there was no desolation. He didn't say, hey, you, you know, you're blind. It's a delusion. He was saying there's a deeper story going on. There's a larger narrative. That's the main the main point of that. So, back to talk about more uh, another question that came in regarding um, the the Surfside tragedy. When the World Trade Center fell down, when the large condo building in Miami collapsed, is it like the Tower of Babel? Is this God telling us He doesn't want us to build too high and be further from terra firma? where he placed us and gave us the Torah? My blunt answer is no. I would not come to such a conclusion. We don't have a right to say anything like that. The Tower of Babel is an event that happened. Can we learn lessons from man-made worshiping themselves and trying to be like God? But I don't know if that's the case when people built the World Trade Center or they built uh, the homes wherever they may be. Are we going to say that they're all doing this to self-glorification? Do people have, are people human beings and everyone has their own issues? Absolutely. The Rebbe Rashab said when the Titanic sank, it was a type of like um, a, a, the taming of people saying something is unsinkable, that we can do anything, we're invulnerable. But first of all, that's not necessarily the cause why it happened. After the fact, it's a lesson we learn. So I would be very careful to make causes and point fingers in that type of way. Personally, if you want to learn the lesson that with all our structures and everything that's built up, we should not think that is giving us absolute security and absolute invincibility? Of course, that's a humbling lesson. But remember, we're talking about people who are lost, people who have died, and people hopefully will be saved. So we're dealing with a situation like that. It's not time right now to be able to talk about that this all happened as a result of that. The lessons we have to learn, we have to learn why it happens, that's off, our, off limits. It's not our business to figure out why it happened. If God wants to, to tell the world why it happened, he'll let us know. 
If not, it's not our job to figure that out. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, what does it mean if occurrences in the world mirror the Pasha? What is the message we should take home from that? A couple of, a while back, we saw that a big sinkhole opened in Jerusalem and swallowed cars whole. Thank you. Okay, so that's going back to connecting it, that's it, Pasha Kerach, where also the earth opened up. I think we have to be very careful when we, the lessons to be learned, absolutely. There are lessons to be learned from Kerach, there are lessons to be learned from the Pasha when something happens, for sure. But to make two direct, to make equations that are too direct, that one has to be careful of because we don't know. So you have to have humility. That's why the focus has to be, as I reiterate again and again, what do we learn from it? How do we grow? How do we become better people? And looking at ourselves, we're not here to point fingers at anybody else. That's not a healthy way to go about it. So the key here is always to figuring out what the action that you and I have to do. That in general keeps us away from speculation that can end up being just going off the wrong way altogether and coming away with conclusions that are wrong, frankly. So in all these questions, yes, we learn all the time, from Pasha and so on. Now when a Navi in the Torah that is speaking in the name of God comes and tells us that Hashem says this is exactly what's happening or what will happen, it's another story. That's a particular situation in history when Navim were prophets and God told them things. But in our case, we learn lessons. Let us be humble and let's not try to be too big chachamim, trying to figure out oh, this is a hint in the Pasha to this building falling or that building falling. I see people do that and it's just very sensationalistic. And bottom line is, what is it? how does it help? Lessons have to be learned in our lives and that's the key thing to emphasize. Okay. Well, let's read a few more questions. In this context, I'm going back to Pinchas. I know this is a little more of a scattered back and forth, but that's part of, I guess, where we are right now, due to events, breaking news, and so on. So the question is, how could Zimri, a holy person, a leader of a tribe, make such a big mistake and fall to temptation of sin? Well, he wasn't the first. It says, The greater a person, the greater is his challenges and temptations, and his yetzer. You know, Zimri had his excuses and his, his explanations. But remember, when it comes to temptation, everybody's capable of falling, even great people. You can ask the same question. What about all the leaders of the tribes, not just Zimri? All the leaders of the tribes, how did they fall in the Chet HaMaraglim? Great people have great challenges. They see things, and sometimes they need an extra measure of humility. That's the general answer. In the case of Zimri, the Mafarshim and Medrashim and Pikabola talk a lot about Zimri and his Gilgal. But it's not for now. It's just the, the, the brief answer. Another question someone asked. It says that the plague in Balak, which killed many, was caused by immorality with Midianite and Moabite women. And it was stopped by Pinchas sparing the main perpetrators, Zimri and Kozbi. In contrast, the plague of Rabbi Akiva students during the Sefer Seimer, between Pesach and Shavuos, is set up because they didn't respect each other. But does it say what stopped that plague? Was it an organized cessation of the Sinat Chinam? 
the baseless hatred, or did merely all of Rabbi Akiva's students perish, and since there was nobody left to dislike each other, by default, the Sinat Chinam stopped, and so did the plague. So first of all, Sinat Chinam is not the word used there. They no go COVID they didn't honor each other. And yes, it's, uh, that can be one reason, that the ones that did it um, were already, unfortunately, they died in the plague. Or you could also say, as it seems to be appear from certain places, that Lag Ba'emer came, and that's when it stopped, due to the events of Lag Ba'emer, that the power of Lag Ba'emer, the power of Lag Ba'emer also including Rajbi, even though the passing of Rajbi would happen later, but Rajbi was one of the few students of Rabbi Akiva that did have Avas Yisrael, and that may have countered the force. So that would be the response, the most immediate response. Um... Someone asked, would relatives of Zimri be allowed to capture and kill Pinchas for revenge unless Pinchas ran to an Ir, Mik- or, uh, Ir Miklet first, a uh, city of refuge? I've never seen this question asked. I would think not, because it was not, first of all, it wasn't a killing by accident, which the Ir Miklet is a shegig, not a mazid. And here the mazid was absolutely uh, sanctioned, that was absolutely condoned by Tera. So my answer would be absolute, that that would be not the case. In a follow-up about the complaining to God, someone writes as following. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. I love your Sunday questions and answer program. In last Sunday's program, you read a question that was probably written facetiously, facetiously about Bullock asking Bilam for his money back after Bilam wasn't able to do the job and curse the Jews. So actually, someone pointed out to me that in Parsha Mates, it talks that Bilam did come to get payment and then he was killed. That's as an aside. Even though, frankly, as I mentioned, he, his uh, curses didn't work. It turned into blessings. But his plot did work. So, he, so Bullock did get somewhat what he wanted. So anyway, this person continues and says, my whole family laughed hysterically at the funny question about Billam coming to get his money back. Um, uh, Bullock coming to get his money back. My whole family laughed hysterically at the funny question. Comic relief is sometimes very important, and I'm glad you sometimes include questions that are funny, as long as it's in good humor and not offensive and disrespectful, of course. But it made me think, I have a serious question. When we have complaints to God individually or as a community, how do we complain appropriately and ask for our money back without inspiring God's anger? Okay, so that was some of the context of what I already answered, how we do it. I don't know about asking money back. God has given us a lot more than we have given him as far as life and even the potential, even the money we make and so on. But I discussed that the, the issues of how to complain properly and, and so on. It bothers me that in many situations in the desert, God judged the Jews too harshly. Many of their complaints were valid, such as being thirsty in the desert. Compare a similar situation to parenting. If a family... We're traveling on a bus on a hot summer day with no air conditioning, and the small children were complaining that they are thirsty. A good parent would do everything they could to reassure the kids that a rest stop with kosher ice cream is only a short distance away, for example. If a father would react in anger and say, how dare your kids complain, 
Now I'm going to send a snake to bite you. That father would be looked at as a madman and probably arrested for child abuse. Therefore, since God our Father was too harsh with us, and since it happened over 3,000 years ago, the only way to correct it and make amends is for God to send Mashiach immediately, along with all the blessings we were promised during the Messianic era. So amen to that. The difference is, however, is a key one. The Abishta did provide everything the Jews needed in the wilderness. It wasn't that they were dying from thirst and, or food and so on. Everything was provided for. Were there Nisianists and tests? Yes, there are tests. And remember also, we're not talking about two-year-old children or five-year-old children. You're talking about adults. Adults who had a relationship with God, who had seen things, who had witnessed great miracles. And there was an expectation of faith. And yes, in times that God tested them. So to say God, God tests people, to use an example, a father testing his children, fathers are not supposed to test their children in that fashion by depriving them of anything. God has the right to test. It's another distinction I would make. Okay. Now, listen, time-wise, let's see where we are. I'm going to do a little follow-up. Um, follow-up of rise of anti-Semitism. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, is there anything wrong with obfuscating the fact that I'm Jewish when going out in public? I often have seen Jews wearing baseball caps when traveling or in countries with a higher degree of anti-Semitism. Now that anti-Semitism is really on our doorstep in America, is there anything wrong with wearing a hat or outfit that's a little less obvious to avoid unwanted attention? Would doing this be a manifestation of a lack of betochen? Did the Rebbe have any thoughts on this? Well, in general, the Rebbe's approach was that the more Jews hide themselves, the more actually is a catalyst for anti-Semitism. And Ge'in Yankif, throughout history, and including today, is critical to be a proud Jew. Now, if there's a particular situation with Pekuach Nefesh and a Rav Paskins, that a person should up conceal that because it's dangerous in the street, and it's not something that is Ayarik Valyavir and a legitimate Rav, it's another story. I don't remember hearing a story like that actually happening. And it would be interesting what happened in Germany back 80 years ago, if there was ever such an instance. But generally speaking, our approach is no. The, to be proud Jews, we live in a country where there are police and there are others that are supposed to protect us. That doesn't mean you have to be reckless. But to go and hide the one's Judaism just doesn't rub me the right way. I would think the opposite. Now again, we have to do it properly and not recklessly. And if there's a rov that paskins, there's a particular situation. You know, if there's a danger going on or something like that, maybe you have to stay home altogether and not go out. But the idea of concealing our Judaism by taking off a yarmulke or some other way hiding one's Judaism, I don't see the basis of it. But again, if somebody has more information or some specific situation, I'd be happy to hear. I just don't want to rule on it because this issue has to be addressed in the proper fashion. But that's my take on it. Should we be worried about the rise of anti-Semitism? So I've discussed this a number of times. We have to be prudent. To worry, there's been anti-Semitism in the past. We've gotten through it. I do not see it necessarily now greater than it has been in the last few thousand years. We have situations that we need to be careful and prudent and do whatever is possible legally when, and with the, with the police 
and protection. But to run around and be frightened and frighten our children is not the Torah way, it's not the Rebbe way, it's not the Chesedush way. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, please read this on your program. In response to your wonderful talk, The Rise of Anti-Semitism, is history repeating itself? Please continue hammering away with your positive, godly message. All your voice is lonely is a lonely minority in a worldwide sea of hopelessness, but a little light will chase away a lot of darkness. Okay, thank you for that. Okay, there's another few follow-ups. I'm just thinking what I should do. Let's do a little follow-up, okay. A few weeks ago, we spoke Pasha Slav, the sin of the scouts. I mentioned it before. So somebody writes like this. To the best YouTube mashpia, okay. I was learning the Sikha Pasha Shlach, Lukute Sikhas, volume 23, which discusses the sin of the spies. The explanation you gave in the last episode is the one brought here. However, the Rebbe states something that got my mind thinking. The Sikha states that, it's, he's quotes in Yiddish, I'll translate that, the Miraglim, the scouts, in their opinion, thought that they fulfilled the mission for which they were sent. This got me thinking. Moshe was instructing them to see what's the best way to conquer the land. He was not instructing them to see whether they should conquer the land. How did this distinction get lost when Moshe was instructing them? It seemed like such a huge difference. Was Moshe not clear in his instruction? Should he have been more explicit in saying, I'm not asking you whether we can conquer the land, just what the best way to do, to do so? Since the spies thought they were doing Moshe Shlichus, it seems something got lost during the instruction process. Can you please shed light on this? Many thanks. So briefly, the whole point of Shlach Lecha means that you are trusting people. You're giving them instructions, but you're trusting them to use discretion. Their discretion. The Maraglim, they were kosher, they were tzaddikim. Moshe told them, go scout out the land in order to know how to conquer it. Like the Ramban explains. Moshe was not suspecting that they're suddenly going to change the whole position and get so frightened that it's a land that consumes its inhabitants and now they're coming to a conclusion. They all had heard, the Abishta said, we're going to the promised land. What, was, what were they doing in the wilderness in the first place? And in Mitzrayim, they're going back to the promised land. How they misunderstood was due to different factors, either because they were spiritual and they were suddenly frightened by the materialism. But this happens all the time. That someone, once you get subjective and become frightened, like it says there, that they we appeared to the, we appeared to that we appeared compared to the giants we appeared like grasshoppers like insects and that's how we looked at ourselves projection they suddenly saw themselves as weak and once a person gets in that type of place anything can go and that's where the mistake happened which of course has many lessons for us personally in our own lives okay I have. Some other follow-up, but I'll do that in later weeks. Let's go to the Chassidus question, part two of the question, what is Tainug Apichsidis? So as I explained last week, that the word pleasure, which means our pleasure, whether we have pleasure from material things, from eating something, from pleasure from making money, or even intellectual pleasure, is human pleasure. 
to associate Tainug Lamaila, Keser, Atik, to pleasure, seems a far cry. So I explained that pleasure is a word that's used as being the highest force in the human being. When you say the pleasure principle. It's used in a negative way. But let's think for a positive way. That the ultimate driving force in a person is pleasure. The true pleasure comes from God, from godliness. From enjoying the delight of godliness. It evolves into pleasure in our minds, learning Torah. From that can evolve even the pleasure of understanding an idea that's not Torah. And the other pleasures that go to Tainuga Elam Haza all the way to Taivus Heter, things that are permissible that we indulge in, and Taivus Issa, God forbid, which is unpermissible and prohibited pleasures. But the concept of pleasure is rooted in the highest place in the soul. That tells us that that reflects Kavyochel, that's the way the Abishta wanted us to relate to him in a way that we could understand. So it's also the highest level is pleasure. But pleasure really means essentially a state of, of Shashui HaMelech Bats Muse, that Rebbe once wrote in a note to me, Shabbos Pasha Bolak, Tavshimem Gimel, that that's only in pleasure. In Rotson, you don't have that. Desire, will, is being drawn to something. But the idea of that inner delight, that inner contentment, and we talk again, how human beings relate to it, is the most inner point of contentment and fulfillment that's not even conscious, it's just a sense of pleasure, sense of delight that a person has. That, Kavyoch Lamaila, is also began in that type of state. Not just that God wanted, but that God enjoyed, or has delight in it. And that evolves in the Lu'umazeh to what people say, pleasure principle, the idea that pleasure is the root of everything. It's true, but in Kedusha. Pleasure of the Kedusha. Nothing greater than Einig, nothing higher than Einig. Pasha Vayeshev Tov the Rebbe answered some questions, and he said there that you could say that below by a human being, pleasure is the highest. But by God, every, nothing comes because of pleasure. Because a human being, why do you want it? Because there's some pleasure in it. Or else, why would you want it? Or else it would just be obstinance, stubbornness, akshonis, as he explains there. But the Ebrishta above wants something. It doesn't have to be because he has pleasure. It's not like he has something from it. So Ratzin would seem to be the highest level. All the Buddha saying he wants it. But the Rebbe says, no, because the Ebrishta wanted everything to be tachel sashlemis, kav yochel, also lamaylet begins with nesava kadosh baruch hu, These are all words of pleasure. And how do we know that that shleim is? Because we see how the human being was created. Since we're created that way, that means that Lamaila also the Ebrish to Kavyochel, so to speak, wants it to start with a level of pleasure. Not, and that should cause the Ratzon, the desire, the will. Which is fascinating because then we have something that we can relate to from our own, the most innermost forces that drive a human being are rooted from the innermost forces that drive God, so to speak, the Nisava Kodesh a level of pleasure, not just that God wants it, but it has also a type of um, fulfillment, even though there's no need there, but it still has that deep level of Shashua Melech Batsmuse, as I said, which means the delights within the king himself just has a delight in something, like just like a father would have enjoy his child, even just the mere fact that he exists, not necessarily from anything that he particularly did. Okay, with that, let us go to the, the, the 28th place winners of the 6th Annual 20 My Life Cities Applied Essay and Creative Contest. 
The essay in English is Loneliness, Chaim Mushka Stern, 25, Hebrew teacher in Brooklyn, New York. Based on Chassidim, Chassidim, there's no loneliness by Chassidim. We always have others with us, and we always have the Ebrister with us. The essay in Hebrew, Men, is Lichyas Chaim Musharim Mahadracha Sefer Tanya, to live a fulfilled life based on the direction of Tanya. Itama Yankovic, student in Jerusalem, Israel. The essay in Hebrew, Women, is Shtus Kedera Chaim, Shtus de Gedusha. Holy insanity, holy super-consciousness as a way of life. Chani Lieberman, educator, Ashkelon, Israel. And the creative track, We're in this together. Photography and poetry by Rivka Plotkin, age 20, student, Beishana, Tzva Seminary, hometown, Brooklyn, New York. The English essays, the English essay and the creative can be seen at chsidasupply.com. The Hebrew essays at diralay.org, D-I-R-A-L-O.org. Okay, with that we conclude this um, special Shivasa Batamu's sad with our prayers and hopes going out to the people who are trapped, suicide, and their families, and all of us. May we only know Simchas Begoli and only hear good news. Should be a Yehovcho Yomamela of these three weeks be turned into to joy and celebration and holidays with the Gula Hamitis Vashlema. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. My life is the supply. Thank you very much. This program is brought to you by My Life, Chassidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chassidusapplied.com slash donate.